More than one family has shared with me that during uh, David's prayer on Sunday mornings uh, that they actually collect their offering. And so we have children as ushers now uh, in families, and that's wonderful. I thought before we got started this morning, I wanted to share with you briefly kind of my preaching plan over the next couple of months. Uh, This is always exciting when we find out what's happening next. This morning and tonight, we'll finish off our series in John 18, 19, and 20, The Glorious Gospel. And then I thought during this uh, time of crisis, we didn't start here, but I thought it'd be good to interrupt ourselves just briefly to address a biblical view of God for just three messages. And particularly in light of what's happening in the world, I want to do a little series that we'll call Our Big God. And in the first message, we're going to address the sovereignty of God. In the second message, the providence of God. And then in the third message, we want to do a test case on the sovereignty and providence of God that I'm going to call, What About Babies Who Die? What about babies who die? And we're going to test from Scripture those two concepts of sovereignty and providence against this tragic issue, which really will help prepare us for any tragedy in life. Then that same Sunday evening, we'll get back to the Pentateuch and we'll continue uh, the Pentateuch then on uh, our Sunday evening services. On Sunday mornings, then we'll finish the Gospel of John in a very brief series in John 21 that I'm calling Love Your Church. John's Gospel ends as Jesus is preparing his disciples for their lifetime of ministry. And so uh, really we see the Church of Jesus Christ just a page later in the book of Acts beginning to be established that little mini-series, Love Your Church, will then prepare us on Sunday mornings, very excited about this, to begin First Timothy, one of the great epistles of Paul concerning the church of Jesus Christ. So we have a very rich and exciting time ahead of us. But for this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we'll consider verses 19 through 23 this morning. Some weeks ago, we began building a gospel presentation from these principles that are embedded in John's narrative of the death and resurrection of Christ from John 18, 19, and 20. We've been building this every message, and we're nearly complete now. Here's what we have so far, and then we'll finish it off tonight. Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his Father's plan for his suffering. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. Thus, you need the payment for your sin Christ offers. For Christ has a kingdom not of this world and offers you a part in it. But to be part of that kingdom, you must believe Christ suffered on your behalf. Christ's suffering carried the sorrow of your sins. You must believe that Christ's death is your only option in hope of salvation. You must believe that Christ truly died and was truly raised from the dead, thus completing payment for your sins. And today, we'll examine the statement, only in Christ can you have peace with God. Only in Christ can you have peace with God. It's an all-too-familiar situation. It's one which we can all relate to. It's a situation sometimes accompanied by physical symptoms, by sleeplessness, by nausea, distraction, and inability to concentrate. If we're not careful, this situation can lead to sinful responses, anger, bitterness, 
fear, self-justification. This particular situation can even blind us to our own sin and responsibility. It can engender great and sinful pride in ourself. Some choose to deal with situation, this one, by running from it or never engaging with it. Others choose to deal with it by forcefully pushing away anyone who's involved. This situation challenges us to live out our theology, to work out in real life what we believe from Scripture. And, and sometimes it's a situation which can't be worked out because you don't have total control over the outcome. And that situation, of course, is when there is something between you and someone you love. Anything from a simple misunderstanding to major sin issues which create discomfort and distance and some sort of chasm between you and another. We're all too familiar with that. We all understand this because we are sinners living in a sinful world. Now, a wise response to this situation almost always involves trying to own your part, trying to be responsible for moving toward that person rather than away from them, if at all possible. And it's good that we're familiar with this because that is exactly the type of chasm that exists between God and every sinful human being. Only this broken relationship, the relationship between God and humanity, is exponentially worse. It's more desperate. Consider these factors that show us it's much, much worse. Here's a factor. In a broken relationship with another person, you can maybe do good things for them to convince them that you still love them. But in a broken relationship with God, the so-called good things you try to do for him only infuriate him all the more because this is essentially like trying to pretend that sin has never come between you. Isaiah 64, 6 says that your good deeds are like a polluted garment, a dirty rag. Why is that? Because good deeds can't erase the bad. How about this factor? In a broken relationship with another person, you can comfort yourself that they share at least some of the blame. But in a broken relationship with God, all the blame is yours. It's all yours. It's none, none of it is his. And how about this factor? In a broken relationship with another person, you sense that trying to draw near to that person may be helpful. But Romans 3.11 says that no one seeks after God. You were unable to seek after God on your own and in your sin nature, you didn't even want to. How about this factor? In a broken relationship with another person, you can even draw on the memories of the good times that you used to have, the history of good times you had. But what about with God? You rebelled against Him from the first moment that you could. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says that folly, sinfulness, is bound up in the heart of a child. From childhood you rebelled. Romans 5 verse 10 says that sinful humanity is at war with God. What does that mean? There are no good times to look back on with God. How about this factor? In a broken relationship with another person, you could possibly point to all the ways that you've been useful and helpful in that other person's life. But God doesn't need anything you have. You've never done anything to make him indebted to you. And so... In our finite minds, you be the judge. What would you do 
with someone who tries to pretend they've never done anything wrong and who does favors to distract you from their guilt, is 100% to blame for the problem, is not genuinely seeking a restored relationship with you, you have no good memories together, and you've never once seen them do anything helpful, nothing that ever made you indebted to them. What would you do? You would drop that person like a rock and move on. But not God. Not God. God in His infinite mercy, He's sought you. He's come after you. To do what? To make peace with you. You're the one that did everything wrong. And yet He comes to make peace. What the Bible calls to reconcile with you. And how has He done this? Through His Son. Romans 5, 10, and 11 tells us that we were reconciled to God while we were enemies And that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have now received reconciliation. Well, at that point, the question becomes, and this is the question of the ages, the question that you've asked yourself of relationships with other people, the question is, is everything okay between me and God? Is everything okay between you and God? If you've trusted Christ and Christ alone to be the payment for your sin debt owed to God, then yes, all is well. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. We have a text this morning that's going to prove this, that everything is okay between you and God if you've trusted Christ as Savior. And I want to show you this morning in our text four guarantees that all is well, that you have peace with God, that you have been reconciled. Four guarantees. Here's the first one. Christ has secured your redemption. Christ has secured your redemption. Now, John chapter 20 begins the account of the resurrection of Christ. The the events of verses 1 through 18 take place early on the morning of the resurrection. But before we get to verse 19, we have to cut to a different camera angle. We have to go to another scene that's recorded in Luke 24. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you what happens because this is what happens next. A little later on that Sunday, two followers of Christ are walking to their home to the village of Emmaus, about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus appeared to them and joined them, but he didn't allow them to recognize him. He asked them what they were talking about. Of course, he already knew what they were talking about. One of them, named Cleopas, actually asked Jesus in a very awkward moment, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So the men updated Jesus about himself. Here's the account, Luke 24, verses 19 and following. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And now Jesus issues a rebuke. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then Jesus spent the rest of the walk to Emmaus preaching the greatest sermon from the Old Testament ever, explaining all that the Old Testament scriptures said about him, and they still didn't know it was him. 
They arrived in the village. They urged Jesus to stay with them as the day was almost done, and they sat down to supper together. And unusually for a guest, Jesus is the one who took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he served it to the men. And at that moment, Luke 24, 31 tells us, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And what did they do? What did these men do? Well, what would you do? They hightailed it back to Jerusalem. They found the disciples and they told them, the Lord has risen indeed. They told the disciples all about what happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke bread at their table. Now, let me take a little side note here. If you think that humanity invented the flair for the dramatic, you would be sadly mistaken. We're only dim reflections of God, who is the originator of the flair for the dramatic. He invented the flair for the dramatic. Second Kings chapter 1, when wicked King Ahaziah sent soldiers and groups of 50 to arrest the prophet Elijah, God didn't give those soldiers heartburn. He sent fire down from heaven to consume them. When God was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't just send the city's bad Yelp reviews. He rained sulfur and fire down from heaven. Jonah wasn't picked up by a rowboat. He was swallowed by a great fish. The Israelites didn't pass through the red puddle. They passed through the Red Sea. The flair for the dramatic displays and showcases God in all of his glory. So Jesus... Fully God, as the Son of God, also possesses the flair for the dramatic. Luke 24, 36, speaking of the men from Emmaus, are now back in Jerusalem, speaking with the disciples, telling them that Jesus is risen. Now we get to verse 19 of chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Luke 24, 37 tells us that everyone in the room was startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Luke uses two different words, startled and frightened, that both basically mean terrified, to emphasize that everyone in the room melted with fear. I'm really glad for this, and I think the disciples are glad for this as well, that the Gospels graciously don't tell us which of them embarrassingly screamed like a little girl, But I'll bet there were some. They thought they were seeing a spirit, a ghost. There were the disciples. And by the way, Luke 24 tells us that other followers of Christ were there as well. They were gathered very likely in the same upper room in which they had shared the Last Supper with Jesus. This room would be accessed by an outside staircase with a door on the outside wall. Houses in the city had heavy bolts which slid through rings on the door and the door frame, and the doors were locked right now. They locked the door from the inside because the most dangerous thing to be right now was a follower of Christ. In fact, it was not out of the realm of possibility that the temple guard could show up to arrest all of the followers of Christ. And if how Christ ended up was any indication of how they would end up, it would have been a death sentence. But the shock and the initial terror of the disciples is actually very, very good news. With this locked door and their shock and their terror, what this means is that there's, there's no possibility that this is some sort of trick, that this is some sort of illusion. The disciples and others were in a locked room listening to the men from Emmaus tell them that they had seen the risen Christ. 
Now, some have said that Jesus walked through the wall or walked through the door. The text doesn't say that. It says Jesus came. Literally in Greek, he arrived. There's no mention of mode of travel. One second he was not there, and the next he was. Clearly the resurrected Lord. This is very, very good news. Because a resurrected Savior means that payment for sin has been accepted. It's been completed. Christ has secured your redemption. Every single sin you would ever commit, completely and utterly paid for. We need to understand the theology of this. This is an important topic. The Apostle Paul connects the death and the resurrection of Christ as being vital to salvation numbers of times. Romans 6 verse 4 He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You must have the death, you must have the resurrection. In the Old Testament, the insufficient sacrifices did something to cover or atone for sins of the past, but they did nothing for your sins of the future. And so the sacrifices had to be repeated over and over again, year after year, decade after decade. But Romans 6 verse 10 says, The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Death and life. By the way, the previous verse in Romans 6 says something incredibly important about our redemption being secured. Romans 6 9 We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, listen to this, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is important. Because if Christ will never die again, that means you never need to have your sins paid for again. Romans 6.23, familiar to us, says the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If the wages of sin is death, and if Jesus died to pay that wage of sin, then his resurrection proves that the debt is fully satisfied. And our eternal life is in Christ. We're bound up in his resurrection. Put it this way, the check has cleared. You're paid for. The first guarantee we have that all is well, that you have peace with God, that you are reconciled, Christ has secured your redemption. You can find a second guarantee in our text that all is well, that you have peace with God. Here it is. Christ has proclaimed your reconciliation. He's proclaimed your reconciliation. Now, at this point, we should make a note about the perfection of the harmony of the Gospels, the four Gospels, because some of you astute Bible students are going to know this in detail. There are four accounts from different men at different camera angles, so to speak, and with different emphases, but they always harmonize. And we've been mentioning Luke's account of this same meeting in this locked room. When the men from Emmaus went back to Jerusalem to find the apostles, Luke 24, 33, and you've noticed this detail if you know your Gospels, Luke 24, 33 says they found the 11. There are now 11 apostles since Judas is dead. But here in John chapter 20, look with me at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Meaning there are ten, not eleven, of the disciples gathered. Well, that same verse, verse 24, provides the answer to the puzzle. Thomas is said to be one of the twelve. 
But Judas was dead, so there's only actually 11. What does this mean? Well, the 12 was simply a generic term. We might even call it a nickname used generally to speak of these men. And then for a very brief time, after the resurrection and before the ascension of Christ, they were referred to as the 11. It's a specific type of figure of speech, which shows that a part can represent the whole and the whole can represent the part. And so it becomes a nickname. And we're familiar with this. It's, it's like saying Walmart says we're having a sale. That doesn't mean every single employee of Walmart all over the world has said we're having a sale. We understand that. So this is an important detail because we need to know who's in this room. For this visit of Jesus, who's in the room? Well, we have 10 of the 11 remaining apostles. We have Cleopas and his friend or relative from Emmaus. And then Luke 24, 33 says they found the 11 and those who were with them. And so there's other followers of Christ as well. And Jesus, appearing suddenly among them, says, Peace be with you. It was apparently at that moment that the room erupted into startled panic. This wouldn't have been silent terror. This wasn't a bunch of men just going like that. They were gasping. There would have been noise. There would have been gasps on one end of the spectrum and maybe some girlish screams on the other end of the spectrum. And so, verse 21, Jesus has to repeat himself. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. They didn't really hear it the first time, apparently. But this is a significant phrase. Peace be with you. This is the Greek form of the Hebrew greeting, shalom, still used today among Jews. King David used a long version of this greeting in 1 Samuel 25, 6. Peace be to you and peace to your house and peace to all that you have. And so is Jesus just using a greeting? Is he just saying hi? No, it has to be more than Jesus simply saying hello in the traditional manner. You remember the last time the disciples were with Jesus? Almost all of them. Luke 24 tells us he just appeared privately to Peter. But the rest of them hadn't seen him since the last time they were together. When was the last time they were together? The last time they had been with Jesus was when he was being arrested and they all ran away. They would have very real reason to expect correction, rebuke, or even anger at having deserted Jesus because they didn't just desert Jesus, they deserted him to his death. And so it would be reasonable to expect that their first meeting might be one where, where we have to have the first and only actual come-to-Jesus meeting of reproof and reprimand. But it's not. Jesus, Jesus isn't just greeting them with peace, he's declaring peace upon them. This marvelous gift of Christ to his followers because of his sacrifice for sins, this wasn't just a feeling of peace. This wasn't just an emotion of peace. This isn't just a a sentiment of peace. This isn't just a vacuous greeting. This is peace with God, as in not being at war with God. This is the glorious truth of Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the glorious truth of Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace. And I think it would help us to understand this if we contrasted this with words that Christ has used for other people. 
for others who will not repent, who will not receive Christ as their Savior. Here's some other words he's used. Woe to you, to all who reject him. Woe, it means ah, it means disaster, it means horror. Here's another word. Jesus will say to those who reject him, depart from me. The unbeliever will then be taken from the blessing of Christ. And Jesus will say to those who reject him, depart from me, you cursed. What does it mean to be cursed? This is a Greek word. Listen carefully. That means Jesus has prayed against you. These are words you never want to hear from Christ, the judge of all humanity. Woe to you. Depart from me. I have cursed you. Instead, the word we hear from the lips of Jesus Christ as those who have trusted him as Lord and Savior is peace, shalom. And what's the result? Romans 5, 11 says, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice. And in fact, that's exactly what the apostles and the others with them did. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He shows them the scars in his hands and side. He freely offers the evidence of his own resurrected body. Luke 24, 39 adds that Jesus said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then as the dawning realization was coming upon them, Luke tells us that Jesus asked for food and in front of them, he ate a piece of broiled fish. I've tried to picture this situation where they're just sitting there dumbfounded, their mouths and jaws on the ground and Jesus just sitting there munching away. What's he doing? Well, obviously spirits don't eat fish. He's real. He's resurrected. And in verse 20, there's an important word that could slip by if we're not careful. He showed them all these things, his hands, his feet, his side. He invited them to touch him. He ate in front of them. And now this important word, then the disciples were glad. Then. This is a conjunction that can be translated, therefore, as a result of. It means that Jesus showed them his scars immediately to demonstrate to them it was really him. And then they were glad. It was effective proof that convinced them instantaneously they were glad. This is a Greek verb often translated, they rejoiced. There's a contrast to what happened with them before the death and resurrection of Christ. John 14, 28, Jesus is encouraging them, but he tells them, but you're not rejoicing. They weren't ready to rejoice yet. But now they're rejoicing And in fact, Jesus Christ raised from the dead. He's proclaimed peace to them and they're rejoicing in his very presence. By the way, just like they are at this very moment, rejoicing in the presence of their resurrected Lord. Listen, the fact that God has proclaimed peace with you, he's Proclaimed peace between you and God. What what should that do? That creates rejoicing and celebration and exaltation. We of all people are the happiest on earth because we are right with God. Christ has proclaimed your reconciliation. Here's our guarantees that all is well, that 
You have peace with God. Number one, Christ has secured your redemption. Number two, Christ has proclaimed your reconciliation. Here's a third guarantee. Christ has empowered you for his mission. Christ has empowered you for his mission. And the lesson is obvious. If you weren't at peace with God, you wouldn't be being sent on a mission by him. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What is this? Well, this is really a private upper room preview of the coming Great Commission. He would give the Great Commission later in Galilee when he would gather with his disciples plus over 500 of his followers. And we know the Great Commission from Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So now the the unity of the Father and the Son that they enjoy in the Son's mission on earth is being extended to Jesus' disciples. They are the extension of Jesus' ministry on earth as Paul would later dub the church the body of Christ. Christ has accomplished the mission of redemption and payment for sin and now it's time for the disciples to go and to, to gather the elect by means of the spread of what is now the finished gospel. Not only are they being sent out by Christ for his mission though, they're being empowered to carry it out. Verse 22. And when he had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. First he gave them a preview of the Great Commission, and now he gives them a preview of the power of the Holy Spirit which will come upon them. This act right here is very much a symbolic promise of the gift of the Spirit which will soon come on the day of Pentecost. They did not receive the indwelling Holy Spirit at that moment. It was a preview of, We understand this for several reasons. First of all, the Spirit had not yet been given. Jesus uh, explained, I'm sorry, John explained in a commentary in John 7, 39, as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus explained in John 16, 7, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the the helper, that is the Spirit, will not come to you. So the Spirit hadn't been given. We also know that the Spirit wasn't given here at this moment because the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, one of the last things he told his disciples was, wait for the Holy Spirit. He promised them in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Several other reasons, which I won't go into right now, but how about this one? Remember, God invented the flair for the dramatic And so when the Holy Spirit comes for the first time in all of history to permanently indwell God's people, do you really think it's going to be in a private locked room with Jesus just going, and that's it? No way. Acts chapter 2 records it was with a mighty rushing wind with tongues of fire resting on the heads of the apostles and the apostles preaching to a crowd of thousands in at least 15 different languages. Now that's how the Lord Jesus, with the flair for the dramatic, would send the beloved Holy Spirit. But for now, with this action, Jesus is evoking the imagery of the Holy Spirit. 
He's breathing on them. This is a, a perfect illustration of John 3, the Holy Spirit being like the wind. In Ezekiel 37, the Holy Spirit is visualized as the breath of God. Jesus is God, now figuratively breathing the Holy Spirit upon them. By the way, this also shows that the Holy Spirit's coming is entirely God's initiative. Salvation is God's initiative. The text here says, he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It's an imperative. It's a command, meaning they will receive, not go after, but receive the Holy Spirit. You don't go to a charismatic worship service to get the Holy Spirit. You don't pray to get the Holy Spirit. Peter said what you do in Acts 2.38, repent for the forgiveness of sins through Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, we could ask it this way. What do you call people with the Holy Spirit? You call them Christians. What do you call people without the Holy Spirit? Non-Christians. There is no in-between. Now, these were believing men here in the upper room. They were regenerate in the sense that they had hearts of faith like the Old Testament saints, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, such as David in Psalm 51 wrote. But what this does show is that the Spirit's relationship to individual believers under the new covenant is going to be radically different. This is, we might put it, covenant 2.0. How is it going to be different? Well, believers in Christ experience permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God. Permanent indwelling. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? will also experience the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 gives us this list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, permanent indwelling, fruit of the Spirit. We also experience spiritual gifting, the gifts of the Spirit. Romans 12, beginning in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Then we get a list, prophecy and service and teaching, exhortation, generosity, Leadership, mercy. We also receive the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We also receive our perfect future hope through Christ, through the Spirit. Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What does that mean? It means that you know that you know that you know that you are bound for heaven. And of course, as our text indicates here, through the Holy Spirit we have the power to proclaim the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, the Apostle Paul said that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do you know you're at peace with God? How do you know you're reconciled? Well, he's empowered you to fulfill the Great Commission by means of the proclamation, by means of living an obedient life as a testimony to the world. And by the way, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission lived out in your life, this is very church-centered. The Great Commission is church-centered. Jesus said in Matthew 28, make disciples, not just converts, but make those who will follow Christ. That is the church. He said, baptizing them. What does that mean? Making them part of the church. See also 3,000 examples of brand new baptized church members in Acts chapter 2. And he said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded in the church. What is that? That's preaching. What is preaching? Expository preaching consists of three basic elements. Reading the text of Scripture, explaining the text of Scripture, and applying the text of Scripture to your life. That's what Jesus said to do. And where do we do that? We do that in the church. He's empowered you for his mission. One more guarantee that all is well, that you have peace with God. Christ has secured your redemption. He's proclaimed your reconciliation. He's empowered you for his mission. One more guarantee. Christ has authorized you for his mission. Christ has authorized you for his mission. This is a stunning verse we're about to read in verse 23. You almost need to take a deep breath here for a moment. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is monumental. Let me break this down into two major considerations for this verse. The first consideration concerns a change in leadership. A change in leadership. Until now, the spiritual leader of the world was the nation of Israel, the Jews. They had the power to authorize acceptance into the covenant community of God. To do so, one became a Jew. The Old Testament called these coming into the flock of God the sojourners. But now, acceptance into the covenant community of God, the new covenant community, this is no longer based on being Jewish, but on being a follower of Christ. And Christ has now appointed new spiritual leadership to represent God on earth for this time, and it is the church represented first by these disciples. There will, of course, someday be a reconciliation as these disciples rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in the Messianic kingdom. Jesus promised this to them in Matthew 19 and in Luke 22. But we should note this. In John's day, in the mid-80s A.D., when the Gospel of John was written, Jewish non-Messianic synagogues, those who did not believe in Christ, were excommunicating Jewish Christians. But Jesus is declaring that Christians, not unbelieving Jewish synagogues, have the key to membership in the community of believers in Messiah. It is now the dawn of the new covenant. So there's a change in leadership. But there's a second consideration for verse 23. And it has more directly to do with the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the Roman Catholic religion has wrongly taken verse 23 to mean that the apostles were handed, have handed down to the church as an entity the ability to forgive sins. And they still use the heretical practice of confession to a priest who then claims to be able to give absolution of sin. Some might say this is special, speaking of special authority given to the apostles, but the New Testament doesn't record one single instance of an apostle forgiving sin on God's behalf. It never happens. And besides that, we've already seen that there are others present in this upper room besides just the apostles. So what does it mean? 
But here's what it does mean. The church has been given the authority to declare that those who repent and submit to Christ are forgiven and those who will not repent are not. We have that authority. In other words, we have the authority to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness based in repentance and the authority to pronounce that without repentance, forgiveness is not possible. Now, let me make this easier to understand by presenting an opposite scenario. A preacher saying, if you repent, God might forgive you of your sins. And if you do not repent, God might still forgive you of your sins anyway. That's an ineffective, powerless message. What Jesus is saying is that the church has the authority to declare the gospel and to say, if you will repent, Christ will save you. If you will not repent, he will not. We're given that authority. And in fact, verse 23 works itself out in very practical terms concerning how the local church is to be pure, how to purify itself, not purify itself of sinners, that would empty the church, but of professing Christians who refuse to fight against, refuse to run away from, refuse to be sanctified, refuse to turn away from a blatant disregard for the word of God. We see this, of course, in Matthew 18, Jesus giving instruction that After, first, a private confrontation, second, a more public confrontation, and third, a completely public confrontation exposing of sin. If after those three steps there's still no repentance or turning away, then the church is commanded to treat that person as an unbeliever. The church has the authority and the obligation to call that person back to repentance. And because of this rebellious disregard for righteousness, that person has forfeited fellowship with the church. Now, we can't truly know the state of someone's heart. We understand that. But the church has been given the authority to say, based on your continued rebellion and your disrespectful response, we are now assuming you are not a child of God. And the fact that this authority means that when the church rightly calls someone to account... Jesus promised in Matthew 18, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? It means that the person under church discipline, heaven agrees with that, and heaven will provide the oomph of discipline behind it. And that when the church says you have repented, you are restored, heaven agrees with that, and forgiveness is granted. By the way, this is why baptism and church membership is so important. It's the means by which a person professes, I am following Christ. And now you're professing to follow, to obey, to submit to Christ. And how sweet then the fellowship of the church becomes when the local church is filled with people who just yearn to obey the Lord, desiring to please their Savior, humbly submitting together under the authority of the Word of God. You are part of the authorized community of faith and you're so connected to Christ that you are called in the Bible the body of Christ. You're called the bride of Christ. His pride and joy. And that gives you a guarantee that all is well between you and God, that you have peace with God, that you have reconciliation. But remember that all of humanity is in one of two states before God, at peace or at war. What does it look like to be at war with God? 
one little portion of Scripture, just a small part. One little part of the Bible says that being at war with God is like God marching you into the wilderness to kill you with thirst. The same section of Scripture says that being at war with God is God putting an end to all holidays, all fun, all joy. Being at war with God is to have Him lay waste to your life. It is to have Him punish you for every idolatrous moment of your life. The same section of Scripture says to be at war with God is to become a desolation on a day of punishment. The same section says it is to have God's wrath poured on you like water, to be run through with the sword, to be broken into pieces, to be carried off by a whirlwind, to be devoured by fire, to be dried up, to have all that you have worshipped broken down, to be surrounded by poisonous weeds, to be carried away like a twig in a river, to beg for the mercy of death, to eat the fruit of your own lies, to be dashed in pieces on rocks, to be like chaff blown away in the wind, to be like smoke blown out a window, to be stalked by the lion who is God, to be hunted by the leopard who lurks in the grass, to be mauled by a bear robbed of her cubs, and to have your guts torn open by the claws of a wild beast. And all those pictures of being at war with God are just from the book of Hosea. God is ready at this moment to rain down the fury of heaven upon those who refuse to believe. You who are at war with God, you are four minutes of oxygen deprivation away. You are one bad case of coronavirus away. You are one car accident away. You are one heart attack away from the eternal judgment of God. You're held over the fires of hell by a single hair at this moment. And God is the one holding that hair. And he can let go at any time he pleases. The fires of hell are being stoked hotter and hotter and hotter, being prepared to welcome you into the flames of eternal torment. Uh, Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13 says that if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And when God lets fly the arrows at your heart, when his sword decapitates you, when he lets go of the single hair by which he holds you over the fires of hell, there will never be peace. There will never be a moment's peace for 10,000 years. And perhaps when you hope for one moment's break, another epoch or era will pass with no relief and you'll spend all eternity as a prisoner of war, never to be released, never to be unconscious, never to sleep, never to be relieved at any level. Thus, you need to hear the words of Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. And if you would come crawling in humility to the cross of Christ in repentance, how glorious it is to know that your peace with God is secured. The Bible says that God will drop all your sins to the bottom of the ocean. The Bible says that God will cast your sins from one end of the universe to the other as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says that he will not hear an accusation against you ever again for all of eternity because your advocate, Jesus Christ, stands continually in the gap on your behalf telling his Father, we are at peace. And though all others may forsake you, God never will. 
because you were bought and paid for. You were owned by your Lord Jesus Christ, and it is with eagerness and anticipation that he awaits your arrival at his Father's house. And when you see Christ, you will not only rejoice over him as the apostles did. Zephaniah 3.17 says that he will rejoice over you. He will be happy over you. Why? Because you have shalom. You have peace with God. And may that be the case for you and for all who listen Don't let it be said that this day you heard about the peace of God and you rejected it. Come to the cross, receive peace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the goodness of the word of God which hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times calls us to receive the reconciliation which God has initiated, which God has put forward, that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive in Christ Jesus. Let it be said of many watching today that this was the day that they received the peace of Christ. And we pray in his name for his glory. Amen.